No, we're, we're not sponsored by Gatorade. Um, how many of you have never seen that commercial before? Raise your hand. All right. Church is younger than I thought. Um, there's this guy. His name was Michael Jordan. And, uh, and he used to play basketball. And he was pretty good uh, for you youngins out there who may have missed that. Um, so they launched this ad campaign, which you just saw one of the original ads. And they were encouraging us to be like Mike. And, and for us ordinary mortals, the only way we had a chance to do that was to drink Gatorade, right? Um, so this morning, though, I'm, I'm launching a different campaign. We don't have, a, don't have a jingle yet, but it's called Be Like Steve, okay? That's, that's what we're going to do. Not, uh, not this Steve and uh, not this Steve. Definitely not this Steve, okay? Our Steve is in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, and we'll look at his life this week. We'll return to it in two weeks after our 25th anniversary celebration next week down at the park. So if you'll open your Bibles to Acts 6 and 7, we'll, we'll think together about what it means to be like Steve today. Now let's pray. Pray as we do that, all right? If you'll bow with me. Father, um, Show us the way we are to live as we follow Jesus, as we look at our, our brother Stephen, as we con consider his life, the brief testimony of his life that's before us today. Um, encourage and strengthen us, your church, to follow him as he follows Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Josh Reed, if, if you were away last week, while well, I was away at the men's retreat, um, Josh Reed from Oaks Church, one of our church plants in North Raleigh, spoke here last week, did an outstanding job teaching Acts 5. If you haven't got to hear it, I recommend it really highly to you. It's available on our website in, on the sermons page. Um, but he showed us the continued pressure and persecution that was growing against this early church in the book of Acts. They're, they're barely out of the blocks, and they're being threatened in Acts chapter 4, and we saw um, last week in Acts chapter 5, they're being pressured and pressed. And that continues in our passage today, threats to the unity of the church. This one, the first one, comes kind of from within. In verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, it says, In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, the first thing we see, the church is growing in spite of the opposition that we've already seen in Acts. He said in Acts 4, they were threatened, told never to speak in Jesus' name again. Um, in Acts chapter 5, you remember Josh taught us last week, they were actually beaten. Uh, the leaders called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, when we look in on the church in Acts chapter 6, um, it could be just shortly after Pentecost. Some have estimated it might be about five years after Pentecost. So this, this is still a very young church, right? But they are in the city of Jerusalem numbering, I would guess, more than 10,000. Okay. This is a huge movement of the gospel reaching people in the city of Jerusalem. Um, and... 
the logistics, if you can imagine the logistics, because though they were 10,000, they did not meet all together. There was nowhere for them really to, to do that on a regular basis, I don't imagine. They met in different places around the city. And the logistics of leading a church of 10,000 um, are complicated. And one of the problems that came up in that first verse in Acts chapter 6 is that there were a group of widows being overlooked in the daily distribution. Evidently, daily, to those in need, the church distributed food, possibly clothing, possibly even financial resources. Um, there were likely many widows in a church that size, church of 10,000, especially in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was this holy city, and many of the widows unable to be cared for in their villages because their husband had passed away, would move to the city to live out their last days and even to die in Jerusalem, the city of God, right? The city of our God. And so um, they had no family there. They relied on the church, the other believers, to take care of them. We don't want to miss this. From the start, the church takes care of her widows, okay? From the start, one of the first pictures we get of the book of Acts, what's going on? They're caring for those in need, especially for the widows. Remember Acts 4, verse 34, 35, it said, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So, so the bar is really set high for us right from the start, right? We make, if need be, we will make a great personal sacrifice to care for those in need, especially, especially widows. Um, and, you know, a casual reading of the New Testament would tell you that that this care for those in need in our midst is a higher priority for the church than having a well-funded retirement, than having killer life insurance, bad choice of adjective maybe, <laughs> than having an extra car, than having a spare bedroom. This matters more, okay? If you're choosing your financial planning, this matters more, okay? Not that the other things are not that there's anything wrong with those other things, but clearly the mark of the church is this, not that. Okay? The church of Jesus cares for her members who are in need, especially widows. Let's have that mark us. Okay? So, in our verse, there are two groups, right? There's a group called the Hellenists and another group called the Hebrews. Now, the Hellenists are likely Jews whose primary language was Greek. Okay, their first language was Greek. They came from regions outside of Jerusalem. They had been converted to, to Jesus' way. They were followers of Jesus, but they were Jews. They were likely born outside of Jerusalem, and scholars have estimated that they could comprise maybe 10 to 20% of the population of the Jews in Jerusalem. Okay, they're a minority. It was their widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Okay. The second group is the Hebrews. They're native to the city. They spoke Aramaic, 
a different language. They're the majority people in the city. So the Hellenist widows, the minority, their widows were being overlooked by the majority. And we don't, honestly, we don't know. They don't tell us whether that's intentional or not. It, it could have been that, that these widows were living in another part of the city. You know how cities work. They tend to have, you know, like if, if you go to San Francisco, there's Chinatown. And there's all these different pockets where ethnicities kind of coalesce. And it could have been there's a Greek-speaking part of the city. And they were just overlooked there. They may have had a hard time getting to where the distribution was happening. Um, they might not have been able to read Aramaic. If, if they posted the, the distribution times, they might not have been able to read it. It could have just been linguistic and cultural issues. They could have just been overlooked. Um, I grew up in a little tiny town in the middle of a cornfield in central Illinois. It's called Metamora. And uh, one of the things about Metamora, about that area really, is that my little town, less than 2,000 people, was 100% white. Okay? Bunch of German farmers settled there, and they were white. Okay? Except for my friend Tommy, who was adopted, and he was Vietnamese. Okay? He's the only guy I knew that wasn't white growing up. I never personally met an African American until I was in college. There weren't any in my little town. I didn't have any, any real African-American friends until I graduated from college, I'm being honest here, and moved to Texas and had a co-worker who was a friend of mine. You know, I had no idea growing up in my little white Midwestern bubble when I was 10 years old in the 60s that there were people in cities based on the color of their skin that had to ride in the back of a bus. They couldn't eat at certain lunch counters. That had to have their own water fountains because of the color of their skin. I had no idea. I did not know. Okay? It wasn't happening around me, and I was too busy playing to be watching the news. Right? Um, I didn't know that there were crosses being burned in people's yards, and lynchings were happening simply because of the color of someone's skin. I had no idea as I played with my friends in my racially monolithic Midwestern bubble. I didn't know. Okay? If somebody would have told me that, I probably wouldn't have believed it. So that kind of um, unintentional cultural isolation happens. It could have happened in Jerusalem. Okay? We, we tend to be amongst our own, and it's, it's easy to overlook those who are not, not near us. The other reality is, I've been around the church long enough to know that it could very well have been intentional. Okay. That if left to our own devices, the church becomes just as racist as the culture in which she lives. Um, and as you know, that's still, that's still happening all around us in the culture. ran across a fascinating story from a guy. Uh, his name's Michael Tate. Um, some of you remember way back in the day a band called DC Talk. He's part of that band. And he tells a story. Um, 
He says, I, this is probably about a decade ago is all, and he said, I recently went to the Smoky Mountains with some friends to do some rock climbing. We came to a small town near Knoxville, Tennessee, and pulled into a little country store. He says, I walked in. Three white guys sitting there gave me a black guy, looks I've never seen before, and one of them said, you don't belong around here, boy. He said, at first I couldn't believe he was talking to me, and then I couldn't believe my ears when he said, you stick around here after dark, or we'll hang you. He said, I was thinking, man, we're sending rockets to Mars, and there's still people living in this kind of blind racial ignorance. He says, suddenly I was experiencing hatred, the kind of bigotry I'd only read about or seen on TV. I'll never forget in that little country store how it made me feel, less than human, less than alone. Now, it's not just in our culture, okay? This this kind of thinking seeps into the church unless we force it out, okay? Now, um, my kids uh, are growing up very different than me. Their high school at points in times has been 50% minority, right? And they, they, they hear about my upbringing in my little white Midwestern town. They're like, Dad, that'd be really boring. I'm like, well, not all of us were boring. But um, so when my daughter uh, Abby was in high school, uh, she was dating a young man of a different race. And uh, at one of her dear friend's house, uh, my, her dear friend's parents took it upon themselves to, to speak to Abby in, indirectly that, that the Bible taught that interracial dating was wrong. Okay? They meant well. They're church-going folk. You know, it goes back to that thing in Genesis where... Isaac chose Jacob as his favorite son and told him, don't marry a Canaanite woman. And the, the, the belief was that the Canaanite women were, were darker. And so that somehow this prohibition had something to do with light-skinned people not marrying dark-skinned people. You know, it has nothing, nothing to do with that. Okay? If you've been taught that, it has nothing to do with that. Okay? The Canaanites worshipped false gods. It has everything to do with that. Nothing to do with the color of their skin, their race, their ethnicity, their culture. So whatever the, whatever the cause, intentional or unintentional, ethnic and cultural differences were dividing the church because people in need were being overlooked. And that... And that the apostles knew had to be addressed. If not, the church would be divided along racial or ethnic lines, and this could not happen. It was contrary to the work of Jesus on the cross. Racism is contrary to the work of Jesus on the cross. Paul, it's almost like Paul had this in mind. When he would later write in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Does that sound like our passage? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But, um, hey, 
hey, thank God that we're not like those guys, huh? People who, people who don't care about people who aren't like them, who have needs, who may, who may be in other churches across town. And they have, they're struggling to make ends meet. Hey, thanks, thank God we're not like people who don't care about the people who are living in the Section 8 housing here in town and, and are unable to pay their bills. Sure, I'm glad we're not like that. Of course, the danger is we can be, if we are not intentionally not like that, we become like that. Just like me growing up, living in my, my mostly white little middle class island in the Midwest. Okay. Unaware of the needs of those around us who are not like us. But yet, who are more like us than any people on earth because they believe in Jesus. Right? They are our brothers and our sisters. You know, the church in Jerusalem was huge at this point in time. I don't know how many. I'm guessing 10,000 plus people. Pentecost and following, they were coming to believe in Jesus by the thousands. And uh, it was the church in the city, okay? It was the church in Jerusalem. They didn't build a 10,000-seat arena and all meet together. They were all over different synagogues, still in the synagogues around the city, there may have been a Greek-speaking synagogue and a Hebrew one, uh, but they were marked by love for one another, and they cared for one another's needs across ethnic lines. And so, you know what? It's, it would not be enough for our little church to be one. We have to make the circle of unity bigger. We have to be one with the other believers at our workplace and in our city and in our neighborhoods. Really cool thing happened last week. On Tuesday night, I went down to uh, Memorial Auditorium, I think it is, in Raleigh. And about, I think it seats about 3,000 or so. There are like 3,000 Christians um, from over 130 churches of every stripe and shape and color um, gathered for a couple hours of worship and prayer for our city. It's like um, the trailer for heaven, okay? And guess what? Most of them are not like me, okay? It's, it, was, it was really beautiful. Um, next year, we'll, 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 if they do it again, we'll go. We had about 25 North Wakers go. Um, if, if God has put this on your heart, I would like to hear from you because somebody's got our leader, lead our church in demonstrations of visible, visible unity across racial lines in our city um, because that kind of unity is what's fueling the growth of the church in Acts and the apostles are bent on protecting it. So this is, this is what they decide to do. The 12, in line of this problem with the widows, right? The, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. They gathered all the folk together. I don't know who, who all that meant, but a bunch of them. And they said, it's not right that we should give up 
preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, Kind of a fascinating response. What's clear in here, though, is that caring for those in need, especially widows, even widows from a different ethnic group, mattered. It was a priority of the church. They took seven key leaders and they tagged them for this ministry to make sure that those widows were cared for adequately and fairly. And again, for it to take seven leaders to pull this off tells you there must have been a bunch of widows in the city if this is just the widows from 20%, right? And these seven men were to have three qualifications. They were to be of good reputation. They were to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Now, if you're like me and you're thinking about who you want to handle this ministry, doesn't this sound like overkill to get really spiritually mature men, right? Seven of them of good reputation so that they can run your Meals on Wheels ministry. Really? (laughs) but, you know, you think about it, you don't want people without these qualifications running this ministry, right? You, you don't want people with a bad reputation handling food and possibly monies intended for widows. That'd be a disaster. You don't want somebody who lacks the fruit of the Spirit but manifests the desires of the flesh working with your widows. That'd be terrible. You don't want somebody who's a fool handling resources okay, that are entrusted to them. So these are vital qualifications for this kind of ministry. The other thing you pick up here is that this ministry really does matter. That caring for the needy and protecting the church from division matters enough to put well-qualified men in charge of it. It's a priority. Don't miss that. It's a high priority. It's not the only priority. Because the apostles, the group of 12 who are leading the church, who are eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, their top priority as apostles was to the word and prayer. And if they gave their energy to hands-on care for these widows, they would do so at the expense of this other priority, the word and prayer. They simply couldn't do both. Now, at North Wake, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between the apostles and our elders. Okay? Our, our elders are not apostles. But there are some parallels in the way the church works, in, uh, especially in the, in the area of priorities. When we meet together as elders, um, if, we, if we have too much on our plate, I can tell you from experience the thing that gets squeezed out of the agenda is prayer. Okay. I, I'm not proud of that, but it happens. Um, and you know that when you serve the church faithfully, okay, in your, with your gifts in very hands-on ways, it frees us to focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer. You don't have to think, this is just common sense, right? It's uh, like, think about about my role. If I had to pass out the bulletin and and run sound 
and make sure your kids were okay and direct some parking and preach on Sunday morning, that'd be a disaster. Okay? That would be, I could not, I could not, by God's design, I could not do that. When you serve well, I am better able to give myself to my two great priorities, prayer and the proclamation of the word. Now, this is not an exemption for me or any of our elders from hands-on service. And again, beautiful thing happened last week by divine accident. Um, I went down to that prayer gathering, right? Last year, I was one of the pastors, a bunch of pastors who pray on the podium, and they pray, prayers lead the time. I was one of those pastors well, this year I wasn't one of those pastors. So, but I did get a call a couple weeks before from the guy running it, uh, Don Reno. And Don says, uh, emails me and says, Larry, I understand your church uses the same presentation software that we're using there. And my regular you know, PowerPoint guy, we use ProPresenter, but we'll call him PowerPoint for our purposes. My regular PowerPoint guy's not going to show. You got anybody who could volunteer? And I said, I think we probably would. Let me check. So Daniel, che- Daniel Creswell checks with all our CG people, and uh, Ryan Thomas volunteers to go down, sit through their lengthy rehearsal, then come back that night so we can, we can have slides to lead the congregation there, the, the, the folks in worship. The day of, the night before, after he's done the rehearsal, prepared all the slides, Ryan gets stomach flu, deathly sick. So I am now the third string PowerPoint guy, Okay. <laughs> I've never, I don't know these songs. I've never seen these lyrics. Ryan got sick before we really polished them up. And uh, they sit me backstage behind a curtain where no one can see me. And I'm advancing slides, trying not to screw up a congregation of 3,000 people from all across the city, right? Um, that's, you know, that's good for me to be the third person string PowerPoint guy. It's good for my soul. But if I did that every week, if, that's, if, that, if, if nobody would do what Corey's doing for us this morning, if I had to take care of that, then my regular ministry would suffer. The thing that God has enabled me to do most significantly would suffer. Your willingness to serve matters. Okay? It matters to the church. Briefly, I preach better when you serve. So you better, you know, start getting after it, people. We could use, we could use a little upgrade here. Come on. Help me out. Okay? The church suffers seriously. The church suffers when you refuse to gladly serve in ways that you may deem beneath you. They matter. The mission of the church is not accomplished by one or the other of these priorities, the preaching of the word and prayer or sacrificial service to help others. It's both. The mission of the church moves forward by both. Both are absolutely vital. So they make this proposal, right? And what they said in verse 5, please the whole gathering. They chose Stephen. Man full of faith and the Holy Spirit and Philip and a bunch of other guys who have hard to pronounce names. Okay? And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Seven guys. 
And it's interesting. All seven of these hard-to-pronounce names, they're Greek. Not Hebrew, not normal Hebrew names. They're, they're likely Greek. And the, the people have wisely chosen from among those who would know the need the best, and they put them forward. Um, the other thing that you see here is that the circle of gospel influence is getting bigger. Okay? It's starting to happen. It's starting to bust out of that initial group of Jews in Jerusalem. And now that some of the Greek-speaking Jews are being involved in leadership, and we're going to see in the next couple chapters, it's going to move out. It's starting right here. Okay. This unstoppable gospel is moving out, out from the center, out from the starting point. But you notice the first name on the list, right? Steve. It's Steve. Steve's the first guy. And it says that he's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's qualified. What's, what's this amazing guy who's full of faith in the Holy Spirit about to do? He's about to run your Meals on Wheels program. Don't lose sight of that. Okay? The apostles set him and six others apart for work they deem vital with prayer and laying on of hands. And it's another clue to the importance they attach to what we would not see as perhaps a significant act of service. It matters to the church. What happens as a result? The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, when the church is one, when we wear and bear the mark of Christ, which is that we love one another, with a love that will cross racial and ethnic lines and social standing and even ACC rivalries. Okay? We'll love one another across these divisive things. As that old song goes, they'll know we're Christians by our love. Okay? The church flourishes when that happens, when she gets the big rocks right. Love for God, love for neighbor. When we get that right, the church flourishes, and a bunch of priests become obedient to the faith. Uh, what's up with the priests? Right? It's interesting. Um, some historians have estimated, it's, it's difficult to estimate, but the high end said that at any point in time, there could be 18,000 priests in the city. Okay? And uh, they were only served actively as priests in Jerusalem two weeks out of the year. The rest of the time, most of them were elsewhere or at least in other trades working. Um, but during their time in Jerusalem, they would have witnessed the conduct of the religious leadership up close. These are the same leaders that Jesus took to task because they like to find ingenious ways not to help people in need, even their aging parents. Maybe you remember when we studied Matthew, or rather this is from Mark actually, Mark chapter 7. Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, 
that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things that you do. See, these priests would have watched this kind of conniving manipulation in order to come up with righteous ways not to help those in need, even their parents. And that would have been pressed up against this beautiful little church that's exploding all around them now where people are selling lands and houses to help widows they don't even know. And they became convinced that this was true religion, as as James put it. It may be, too, that the priests had a better sense for what's about to unfold in our passage. Something has happened to the temple. They would have known that at Jesus' death, that temple curtain was torn, mysteriously torn in two, symbolizing access to God's holy place. It's in Matthew 27. The curtain of the temple when Jesus died was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. See, they they may have had a sense that they were about to be out of a job that there was a new temple in town. There was a new way to access God, and that was Jesus. And so many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The focus of our story now shifts fully to Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. God is using him greatly, far beyond, it seems, his job responsibility of just serving tables, right? He's doing work not unlike the apostles here, great wonders and signs amongst the people. And I would like to say, though, that I think that that order matters, that he is first faithful in waiting on tables, and then God uses him greatly, powerfully in in doing mighty works and and teaching. And if you are in our congregation, as many of you are, and you are preparing to be a pastor or leader in the church, you need to heed his example. You should serve now if you want to lead then. You you do not get a, a pass because you're in seminary. You get a responsibility because you're in seminary. You ought to be the first ones to sign up. When that study serves sign-up starts, our seminary students ought to beat a, a path to that thing, to sign up. It is perhaps more vital training than you're getting down the street for leadership and ministry. But all these mighty works God is doing through Stephen now make him a target for those who oppose the church. And this is what happens next. There's some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. 
And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. They're talking about the temple. And will change the customs that Moses delivered, delivered to us. So Stephen is being used by God to perform miraculous deeds and to teach. And opposition is coming from all over the place. They list a whole bunch of places. It's widespread. Likely these were more Greek-speaking regions. So Stephen is being opposed by his own. And there's a particular region in there called Cilicia that may have included a place called Tarsus where a zealous young Jew named Saul lived. He's going to show up in about a page or two in the book of Acts. He may have been amongst those opposing Stephen at this point. But they were unable to withstand the wisdom with which he spoke. And as we see when we get into chapter 7 in two weeks... He's, he had remarkable grasp of the scriptures of the Old Testament. I mean, he's going to take us all the way through the Old Testament in this sermon that he gives uh, in chapter 7. He knew the Old Testament scriptures well. And that probably is why that's the wisdom that is alluded to here and why they could not prevail against him. He knew the scriptures. And this message from the scriptures is by God's loving design for all peoples. And it is unstoppable. The religious leaders could not stop it. Hitler could not stop it. Kim Jong-un cannot stop it. False witnesses cannot stop it. It is unstoppable. That's why we send people all over the world from Northway. We, we did, we're counting up for the 25th anniversary service next week. We've sent almost 70 missionaries out of our church. This is, why we, this is the hope that we send them with, that they bear an unstoppable message for all peoples. And the charges are made against him that blasphemous charge, or that he's guilty of blasphemy, that he's been speaking against Moses and the law Moses brought and the temple. These are not lightweight charges, okay? They are the equivalent of blasphemy they're charging him with, and they carry the death penalty. Are these charges true? Was Stephen speaking against the temple? We'll hear more about that next week as we actually listen to him speak, or in two weeks, in his sermon. But there was a sense in which he really was endorsing the message of Jesus, which did involve judgment on the temple. In some ways. Um, in John 19, famously, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. John Piper does a, a really excellent job with this when he says um, that this statement is why the curtain in the temple tore in two as Jesus died. It was a token of destruction. The walls were coming down. Jesus himself was taking the place of everything in the temple. 
Jesus, he says, became our one and only high priest who lives forever to make intercession for us. So the temple priesthood was destroyed. All the animal sacrifices of the temple are destroyed because Jesus is our sacrifice. The temple is no longer the place where you go to see the glory of God. Jesus has revealed the glory of God. And so he says the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. We have a new temple, a new priest, a new sacrifice, a new access to glory and fellowship with God. So that when John the Apostle has a vision of heaven in Revelation 21, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. He says what Jesus meant when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, was that he himself was taking the place of the temple. By dying for sin once for all and by rising from the dead to reign as the everlasting priest and Lord of glory, he says, when I die, the temple system dies. When I rise, I am the temple. I am the sacrifice for sins. I am the priest and go between with God. I am the presence and radiance of his glory. The temple is finished. Now, what was false about their testimony was that they made it out to be like Stephen was speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses and against Moses, when in fact he wasn't speaking against them. He was speaking of their fulfillment in Christ. And they were making him out to be a kind of blasphemer, almost like a terrorist who was out to destroy the temple. Again, John Piper's helpful when he says, What the false witnesses did not grasp at all was that the kind of destroying that Jesus was doing was a fulfilling of everything that God and Moses promised in the law. The forgiveness of sins, a personal priestly advocate with God, the presence and accessibility of his glory. Stephen was not against Moses and God. He was not against the temple and the customs. He was for their fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, he says, destroyed the temple the way a homecoming from Saudi Arabia destroys the need for letters. He destroyed the temple the way the rising sun destroys the need for streetlights and headlights. He destroyed the temple the way a descending reality destroys its shadow. And the priests would have seen this up close. That there was a better and a new and better way to draw near to God now in Jesus. And they became obedient to the faith. They became followers of Jesus. And that same good and beautiful way is available for you today. It's not just for then. It's for all peoples of all times. So that here in Wake Forest, in this room this morning, you can become obedient to the faith and place your faith in Jesus as your sin bearer, as your substitute. That He would become the temple that makes God accessible to you. You have to lay aside all other systems and approaches and hopes and cling to Jesus in faith that He is that final sacrifice, that ultimate sacrifice for all of your sins. If you will believe that, He will draw you near to God. Well, as all these false accusations are going on, right? It says in our last verse we'll look at today, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
what is that about? Okay, The face of an angel. And uh, fascinating, fascinating parallel. You go all the way back to the Old Testament. You remember when Moses went up and got those Ten Commandments and he came back down? Um, it says in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Um, one of the commentaries I was working with makes this interesting parallel. He says, these Hellenistic Jews were accusing Stephen of preaching against Moses. And yet Stephen looked just like Moses. After he had been on the holy mountain speaking with God, his face was aglow. The words Stephen spoke were given to him by the Holy Spirit, and thus they were the very words of God, just like the word Moses spoke with glowing face were the words God had given him on the mountain. And as we're, as we're going to see next week, Stephen is going to lay down his life for these words that God has given him, for these truths, these promises. He will not deny Christ. He will give his life for him. And um, that too is not, um, not merely an historic phenomenon. You know, Christians right now are the most persecuted religious group in the world. An average of at least 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. Six of our brothers and sisters will lay down their life for their faith today. Today. Before you put your head down at night, six of our brothers and sisters will die simply because they follow Jesus. There are more than 60 countries where Christians, 60 countries in our world where Christians face persecution simply because they follow the way of Jesus. The worst of those, top of the list, is North Korea. And so tonight at 6 o'clock, we gather in this room to pray for the persecuted church, for our brothers and sisters around the world. You know, you, you don't hear about any of this stuff in the media. You're not going to. If we don't pray, no one cares. Okay? God has called us to pray for our brothers and sisters. Who are suffering, even unto death. So tonight, six o'clock in this room, we gather for prayer. All right. Be like Steve. What does that mean? I mean, just listen. Listen to me as I remind you of what Stephen looks like in this passage. He's a man of good reputation. He's full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and full of faith and full of grace, and full of power. We have seen him be a willing, humble servant to those who are in need. We have seen him trust God to use him to do great and mighty things through him. We have seen him face opposition, even false accusations, with remarkable calm and peace. And as we'll see in two weeks, to be like Steve is to be very much like Jesus. What, what does it mean for you 
to follow Stephen, to be more like Steve as he follows Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer?